0: Warning, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that this episode may contain stories and names of deceased persons. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au. Forward slash talking Australia for a special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote, and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today, I'm talking to Professor Lyndall Ryan. Lyndall is an Australian historian who has dedicated her life to uncovering Australia's dark history. In 2017, Lyndall released a digital map that recorded massacres of Aboriginal people by white settlers. That map went viral and has turned into a national project. Lyndall also talks about the infamous history wars and this new era of truth-telling. So I'm really excited to be talking to Lyndall today on this episode of Talking Australia. Lindell, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. It's a pleasure. Now, we're going to go into the, the research that you've done um, yes. in 2017 about, the, um, about mapping the massacres and uh, things like that, but I wanted to just go back a little first. Okay. Okay. Um, one of the things I was curious about asking you is what was your early education like on Indigenous Australia?
1: I, I guess I was introduced to Indigenous Australia when I worked as a research assistant for Professor Manning-Clark, who was then writing Volumes 2 and 3 of his six-volume History of Australia and it was all largely about Tasmania.
0: But what about what about your early, early education? Very
1: early at school. Yeah. Uh, nothing at school. Nothing. Nothing that I can recall. I may have. I know uh, I was told when I think I was in primary school, that when I grew up, there'd be no Aboriginal people left in Australia, that they were all on the brink of extinction. Mm. I wasn't uh, curious enough then to ask, how did that happen? Right. Australian history wasn't really taught. We were taught about Captain Cook. We were were taught about the First Fleet. But not much beyond that. It was a lot of British history, about the history of Britain but nothing about Aboriginal people. Right. And when was it? It seems extraordinary now, but, yes. But, you know, and we had no interest in Australia. We were all obsessed with European history and British history. That was where the excitement in history was. And Australia, nothing happened. It was boring. So, and I do recall in my final year of my arts degree at university, uh, we were told we had to do a segment on Australian history. But we had this very eccentric university lecturer and he was obsessed with the First Fleet and so obsessed that we spent six weeks with the first fleet in Rio de Janeiro on the way out and another six weeks in Cape Town where and we learned about the number of cattle and pigs that were bought and put on the ships for the first fleet. But we didn't arrive in Australia. The course ran out. I mean, we ran out of time. We didn't get through the heads. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> when was the moment that you became aware that, hey, wait a minute, this was a lot more violent than is being made out?
1: Um, Probably when I was working with Manning Clark and I'd gone to Hobart. How how did that
0: happen? How did you start working with Manning Clark?
1: Uh, Well, I I was always mad keen on history. I had a very good uh, degree in history from the University of Sydney and I had a relative who was a political scientist who was working at the ANU, where Manning was, and it was known around the traps that Manning was looking for a new research assistant. And so my relative called me and said, why don't you come down to Canberra? You love history. Um, Why don't you come down to Canberra and have an interview with Manning? I I was certainly an undergraduate when Volume 1 of A History of Australia came out, and I do remember this very eccentric history lecturer in Australian history coming in and holding up a copy of the book and said, you must never read this. And we were kind of like, who is this guy?
0: (laughs) Now I have to read it.
1: (laughs) Well, it it wasn't widely available. It had just come out. And for some reason, Manning was very unpopular in the Sydney History Department. What made you want to go for the interview? Well... I'd be by then I was a school teacher and I was bored. I wasn't a terribly good teacher and I was very bored and I think my relative in Canberra thought, Well, here's a break a possible Get you out of funk. Yeah, yeah. So I went down for the interview. I went to Manning's house. It was in the Eve it was sort of around tea time and we spent the whole interview talking about the novels of Balzac which I, thank goodness, we had been reading at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so you impressed him. So we talked about that and then he offered me the job. So and what did he
0: have you working on for well, you know, we're the first? Well, we are doing
1: volume two, which was Australia from about... ..in the 1820s and 1830s, 1822 to 1838. And that involved uh, Tasmania and New South Wales and the beginnings of settlement in Victoria and South Australia. But Manning was really interested in William Charles Wentworth, who was um, what they call Australia's native son. He was he was born <clears throat> in Australia. Uh, his father was uh, an army officer and his mother was a convict, although it wasn't known at the time. It was hidden, and I didn't know at the time. William Charles Wentworth had... Uh, gone to school in England and then come back to Australia and gone across the Blue Mountains with Blacksland Law. He was the Wentworth of Blacksland Lawson and Wentworth. And then he went back to Cambridge and studied law and wrote a book um, on Australia. And then he came back to Sydney and started a newspaper, The Australian, in 1824. And Manning was very interested in what drove this man... But he was also interested in, the, in in Tasmania and Governor Arthur, who was the complete opposite of Wentworth. Wentworth was young, confident, swashbuckling, arrogant, rude, whereas Governor Arthur was uh, very uh, introverted. Uh, saw that he was running this convict colony and everything had to be in its place and every convict had to behave properly. But he also had to manage the Black War. And that's when I got interested.
0: And just to clarify, the Black War, that was the wars
1: with the... In Tasmania, between the settlers and the Aboriginal people. And that was all in the 1820s when Governor Arthur was the governor. So after finishing working with Manning, I... um, decided I would do the Black War. So I trundled down to Hobart and uh, started working in the archives. And then someone said, oh, you better meet the Aboriginal people. And I said, what Aboriginal people? The Tasmanian Aboriginal people. No, I said, they've all gone. I know, the last one died in 1876. Well, there's some Aboriginal people here in Hobart and you should meet them. So I think... I went to a a pub in Hobart one Friday evening with this person from the archives and I met these people who were clearly very Aboriginal and one of them was called Tasman Brown and I said, look, you're certainly Aboriginal-looking but you can't possibly be Tasmanian. Uh, Perhaps your parents came across to Tasmania from mainland Australia when you were young or before you were born or... But, you know, not Tasmanian. And he said, no, I am a Tasmanian. This couldn't be right. How could this be? It took about a week for the penny to drop. Whatever I knew about the history of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people, there was no way they could have survived. There was no way they could be alive in the middle of the 20th century. This was the 1970s and... Suddenly my world was turned on its head.
0: And now that you have that information, I guess, did you feel that
1: you had a responsibility? Oh, definitely. And I, in fact, lost a bit of interest in the Black War. I wanted to tell the story of how these people had survived. So my my thesis topic was turned on its head. Um, I had to go back to my supervisor at Macquarie University and say, uh, you know, these people have survived. Why didn't we know... Uh, You know, this idea that Aboriginal people everywhere were on the brink of extinction and that the Tasmanians were the first to become extinct and now here they were having survived. There weren't a lot of them, you know, it wasn't huge numbers, but they were there and they were clearly Aboriginal and um, they were clearly alive.
0: And then you wrote the book on Tasmanian yes. Aboriginal people. Yes, yeah. So while you were writing your book about um, Tasmanian Aboriginal people, on the side were there then discussions about um, or obviously okay. um, the frontier wars? So were they kind of... When did the frontier wars start to
1: get written about? Yes, that didn't come until the 1980s um, and... It was probably work that Henry Reynolds was doing. So so your book preceded that completely? Definitely. My book came out in 1981 and it was really based on work that I'd done in the previous decade in the 1970s. And Henry also published The Other Side of the Frontier in the same year and there was also Richard Broome's book, Aboriginal Australians, that was also published in 1981. So a
0: so lot was happening, a happening lot in A lot was 1981.
1: happening in 1981. And that was the year that the first Aboriginal history courses began to be offered.
0: Right. So that year, 1981, all these books are getting written. Yep.
1: Published. They're getting published. Yeah.
0: All these books are getting published. What's the general consensus among the Australian public? How are they reacting to that kind of news and this new kind of history? Well,
1: there was great excitement, you know, great interest. The 1980s was a much more open period. There were people who contested that the Tasmanian Aboriginal people weren't really properly Aboriginal. There was a bit of that going on. But it didn't last very long. It was like a, a last gasp of an older generation. Right. That it had, had a very narrow scientific training that, you know, Aboriginal people were defined by, by how much blood they had, Aboriginal blood... Uh, whether you were a half-caste or a three-quarter-caste or a quadroon or something, well, that was all disappearing in the 70s and 80s. That belonged to what we call the assimilation period. We were now moving into a new period where Aboriginal people were demanding land rights, uh, that they argued that it was not their fault if they were not entirely full-blood Aboriginal because white people... That was white people's problem, not theirs. So the the language of, of debate was changing. Aboriginal people were speaking out. They were sort of seizing the moment that there was a space for them to speak. So you had people like Michael Mansell in Tasmania training as a lawyer and using the language of law to contest the past. And there were a whole group of people like him across Australia, a whole new generation of Aboriginal activists who were university trained. And so white historians were just part of the mix in a way Uh, and it was a very exciting period. And then uh, in the bicentenary year in 1988, um, the journalist um, Bruce uh, Elder published a book the first book of massacres in Australia, called Blood on the Wattle. And that sold like hotcakes. Everybody wanted to know.
0: Because people wanted the information. They wanted
1: to know. And by then I did know a lot more about the frontier and I contributed uh, a chapter to what they called the Bicentennial History Project Volumes. It was um, an eight-volume series of the history of Australia.
0: We'll be back with our conversation with Linda Ryan just after this. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's au forward slash Talking Australia. I read that um, some some of the people from that um, assimilation era that you mentioned, yes. their kind of criticism was, well, this is based on, um, you know, oral histories and yes. it's just passed down. That was one of the big criticisms. I they guess joke. your recent work has kind of turned that on its head a bit. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, uh, in the 1980s... Uh A lot of information was coming from interviews conducted with Aboriginal people by anthropologists. Uh, Not that the anthropologists asked them about massacres. It was like, tell us about your background. Who were your parents? Who were your grandparents? How How did you come to be living where you are today? and they could be living in a country town, they could have been living on a reserve, they could be living in the city. Uh, And so these people were just telling their stories, like my grandparents, my grandmother was killed in a massacre. But nothing was said, you know, nothing... the, The interviewer didn't take it further, but it was there. And a lot of these interviews were published. I didn't think there were very many massacres. I really thought... You know, if you added it all up right across Australia, probably about 20. And in Bruce Elder's book, I think, in the first edition, he had about 20-odd massacres. But when you looked for the evidence in that book, um, the evidence wasn't very strong. You know, it was more about saying what happened rather than how it happened. So as a historian... I really never used Bruce's work at the time because it just, the evidence didn't stack up. There wasn't any, there was no real definition about what a frontier massacre was, how many people needed, were killed, um, how they happened, where the evidence was. It was sort of based on stories, hearsay. There was a lot of interest in massacre, but I wasn't really writing about it very much. When, you know, it was sort of the mid-1990s, uh, which was the period of the stolen the report into the Stolen Generations. That's when lots of stories about massacre really started to appear by Aboriginal people. And Talking that's when you
0: kind of thought, wait a second, there's more to this.
1: No, not at all. It wasn't until Keith Winchartle came on the scene in the year 2000 and that was during the Olympic Games. He published a series of articles. I knew Keith reasonably well. We had a lot of mutual friends, and he wrote these articles sort of saying that historians had invented massacres. I did read those articles that Keith published, and I kind of thought he's not really understanding that you know the frontier is becoming increasingly important, the history of the frontier. So I wrote an article on Keith's articles, uh, <laughs> a critique, like you know, we need to get some definitions of what oh, a massacre yes. is. Uh, what he also said in his articles in Quadrant was that you know there were fire he was prepared to acknowledge the f- Five massacres had taken place. But there were other incidents that people said were massacres but clearly weren't. He called them legitimate police operations. I'd never heard that term before. Oh. And he indicated that Risdon Cove was a, a legitimate police operation and a massacre in Western Australia, Pinjara, was certainly a legitimate police operation and also at Waterloo Creek. And I thought, you know, this is mad. He's got no more evidence than anybody else. He's sort of creating something which doesn't exist. And so in in this article, that's what I was saying.
0: Did you feel that it would, like, flare flames?
1: No. No, I thought it was cutting it sort of... Dousing the Flames.
0: Right. It was
1: designed to douse the flames of madness, <laughs> of Keith's <laughs> madness. <laughs> and there were a couple of public events, of a minor public events following my article and Keith's articles. My article would have come out about six months after Keith's articles. So it would have been the year 2001. And there was an event held in a bookshop in Sydney... Uh, one Sunday afternoon where Keith turned up and some journalists from The Australian um, and on the other side was the bookshop owner and a, a couple of other local historians, not academic historians. And it was like the bookshop owner said, look, I've got found all of these books of histories from the 19th century and they all say massacres happened. And on the other side, we've got Keith who say they didn't happen. So how are we going to address this problem? And I turned up to that. And then Keith looked at me and he said, and I'm writing a book to show you that everything you've written, you've invented. But what Keith was doing, and it's a technique I've since discovered that <laughs> people like him across the world do, Which is really fake history. (laughs) They say Lyndall Ryan said that genocide happened in Tasmania. And here's the evidence she's mentioned the word genocide twice in her book. Keith mentioned the word genocide five times on the first page of his book, but it wasn't evidence that there was genocide in Tasmania. But, you know, so, and then he kind of argued that I had said that uh, about 700 people. Aboriginal people had been killed in the Black War and Keith went and did his own research and said about 120 had been killed, you know, sort of what had happened to the rest. And that was, that was when the history wars really started. Right. That he'd produced a book in which he had said that key historians like Lyndall Ryan and Henry Reynolds uh, had invented the Black War.
0: So the history wars really in Australia were really focused on, I mean, Keith Tas- and you.
1: Yes, and, and Tasmania. And it was all about Tasmania.
0: All about Tasmania, wow. And so, I mean, when did, I guess, the massacre map first come into your mind? Well... And, th- it, and, and yeah. also explain to us what, what that is.
1: Yes. The massacre map is much later. The massacre map didn't begin to take shape... Uh, the idea didn't, didn't happen until about 2012 when I was doing a new version of the Tasmanian Aborigines and I had lots of maps in my book um, which with dots where the massacres happened. But I was working with a cartographer who usually did a lot of digital mapping and he said, you know, you could do a digital map ..of these massacres in Tasmania. I can give you the coordinates. We can work out exactly where they were. We can go and visit some of the sites and we can put all the evidence in. So he was the one that gave me the idea. So when I came back to Newcastle, somebody said, ''Why don't you do a whole map?'' There's all this new technology. So the idea gradually surfaced over time.
0: And when did the idea to base the map on white accounts of history rather than oral histories come into it?
1: That was always there. That was always there. I felt that this was what white people did and that there was probably sufficient evidence around. The other uh, digital thing that had happened, of course, was the availability of colonial newspapers on Trove. Right. And that didn't... So st- Trove had a massive impact. Well, I couldn't have done it without Trove. And Trove started to appear around about 2011 and 2012. And more newspapers kept on being... What,
0: what were some of the papers saying?
1: Well, they were recording, you know, a group of army officers went out today and came back and said that they had killed eight people. In Very upfront... Very upfront,
0: and I guess that's pretty hard to argue with. Yes, and, there in and the detailed paper.
1: reports that were available in the archives. So, you know, people were very open about it, and right up probably until the Mile Creek massacre of 1838, where seven of the perpetrators were convicted and hanged, the newspapers were full of massacres. So the newspapers gave me great confidence, knowing that they were available and I could access the newspapers from my computer in my office, rather than having to go to all of the various places, um, libraries where these newspapers were held. Mm.
0: And tell us about the moment that you published the map online officially. What was that
1: like? Well, that was 2017. That was in July. And I had prepared for that. The university's media unit were very anxious to um, have a formal launch and we launched it at a big history conference being held here in Newcastle in July 2017. So it's precisely about two years ago and this was stage one of the map. Uh, It uh, had about 172 uh, sites on the map in Eastern Australia. So it was really just to give people an idea.
0: So it was far more than the 20 that was reported in the 90s. That's
1: right. Oh, yes, far more, far more. And people had been... Were, there had been various other maps published, um, wall maps published uh, during, you know, in the previous uh, decade, but they didn't have enough evidence. There was no definition. Of massacre. What was your definition? Uh, is the is the indiscriminate killing of six or more undefended people in one operation. And we decided on six because most Aboriginal communities in their the smallest communities are usually in groups of 20. And if you kill six people from a group of 20 in one in one operation. It's what is what's called a fractal massacre. It prevents that community continuing on as they were. Their ability to hunt food, their ability to perform ceremonial, their ability to reproduce, uh, is is changed forever. They are also immediately vulnerable to further attack, uh, and also they also become vulnerable to disease that was the other thing i discovered that this view that aboriginal people had died out from disease was was very was the dominant view right
0: did you find that you reached more people because I almost feel like you can publish books on something but not that's everyone's right. going to sit down and read no, a that's book right. very few. when it comes to a, yeah. a map that it you can It was instantly interact.
1: available. Yes, yeah. it was instant. How and many visits did you get to...? Oh, gosh, I wish I could remember the number. And, unfortunately, look, it was thousands and it was across the world. It was hundreds of thousands. It really oh. took off. It really took off. And it was very heavily promoted by the media. Uh, all of the main, all of the digital... Um, newspapers in Australia, picked it up, they put in the website, you could click it on yourself, you could click onto a site, you could find the information. People loved that. And the response was fantastic. Within a bar What was Keith's response? That's what no, we're No, nothing. Wondering. There has been a deafening nothing. silence. Wow. A deafening silence.
0: When it comes to the map, how mm. many massacres were recorded?
1: On the first uh, stage of the map, uh, released in July 2017 we had 172 sites. That was in Tasmania, Victoria, parts of New South Wales and a little bit of Queensland. So it was our very first attempt to show that if you really do the research, you can actually find first-class evidence. We also, on the map, had um, a star system. If you had, you know at least three different kinds of corroborative evidence you got three stars if you had one or two, if you had two different kinds of evidence you got two stars and if it was one form of evidence one star what i was doing was having the one and two stars was encouraging the general public to find me more information right. and that's what they've been doing the map took off like a rocket people were contacting me within hours. Hours. Saying, I've just looked at that site up in northern New South Wales. I've got more information. Did any
0: of the ancestors contact you and say, I actually think I'm related?
1: No, no, no. no. These were all white people contacting us. Uh, It was often people who'd lived in an area for a long time, done a bit of their own research, knew the area quite well, Uh, uh, and knew of somebody who might have written about it or a newspaper article that I hadn't managed to track down. So it was all about that. Or they were saying, why haven't you got the site that I know about on the map? Here is my information about a site you haven't got on the map. So it became a national project. People uh, were wanting to provide information. But in the first instance, it was largely white people. But they did want to know. They had done a bit of research. It was a regional project. It was a project about regional Australia. People from the cities weren't writing to us. People who lived out there where the massacres happened. Right. And we... They were the ones who were writing to us and saying, here's more information. I have a a diary from an ancestor. Here's, here's the copy of the diary. Or... Uh, here's a photograph that my ancestor took in the 1920s right. of the site.
0: And what did that new information, that culminated into stage two of the map?
1: It helped. I mean, I was still doing, we would published stage one because we've been working on it for a couple of years. And I thought, if I don't start putting sites up there and getting out there, it will never be finished. It's a project that, of course, will never be finished. So stage two came out last year uh, in 2018. And that had an Uh, and added 80 sites on the map. And that took us also into the Northern Territory and South Australia.
0: And so now we have, I mean, will the Stage 3 be WA?
1: Yes, Stage 3, which will come out in October, uh, will include sites from WA. We have about 50 sites from WA and sites, new sites from other parts of Australia. So I think we're probably going to end up with about Nearly 400 sites altogether. At that point, I think I'll call a halt. I think I've made the point, you know. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it will take me to the grave. <laughs> How are you hoping people use the map? They're using it all the time. They're using it in schools. Everybody's got a computer. So we get... we get um, Since Stage 2 has come out, we've had more than 800 people contact us directly with new information. Right. So it's very much a national project that people want to contribute to.
0: If you're interested in seeing the map, the link is provided in the bio for this podcast. Um, Linda, my last question is, do you feel that your map, I guess, has ignited a form of or a new form of truth telling where Australians are more open to and want more information on these things?
1: Oh, Definitely. The map coincided with a lot of other new work coming out by Aboriginal artists like Judy Watson. Uh, There's a whole range of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal artists who are doing that. Uh, Photography is revealing where some of the sites are, although I've always been very nervous about that. Aboriginal people have asked us not to give the actual coordinate of the site because many sites get desecrated even today and many of the sites still contain human remains and many of them are very sacred sites for Aboriginal communities. So while there has been a new kind of truth-telling about the past, we're still grappling with how to manage it, how to understand it. Certainly the uh, negative parts of the history wars... Do seem to have moved on. I think it's been shown that those people who were massacre deniers have now been shown that, you know, that they've seem to have disappeared. They're not, they're not engaging. Perhaps they will start to engage again, but over the last two years there's barely been a ripple. Of all of the people who've contacted us about the map, we might have had half a dozen who might not have agreed with what we're doing, but that would have been out of thousands of people who've contacted us. There is an enormous interest on the part of Australians in wanting to know that truth-telling is really important. And I think that uh, with the Uluru Statement from the Heart people are really more aware of what's been happening. But a lot more Aboriginal people are telling their stories. As I'm, as the map moves more into the 20th century, I'm relying more on published interviews with Aboriginal people for evidence uh, in the Coniston massacre of 1928, for example, where we think about 300 people were killed over a period of several weeks. It's the stories of the survivors... ..who can tell you exactly how it happened. Whereas the official report doesn't say very much at all. It's minimal information. So Aboriginal people's um, stories are filling in the gaps. Uh, You know, where it was on the river, uh, which which campsite, what time of day it was, uh, which is very important... Aboriginal people know that, which waterhole it was. It wasn't that waterhole, it was that one. And that one is more important for various reasons. So we're learning about the history of Australia. I see the map as a new history of Australia.
0: And if you'd like to see that map, you can find the link in the bio for this podcast. Um, Lyndall, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's a pleasure. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Lyndall Ryan. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at Geographic.com. or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.